they all saw some little part of that. And I think of it like when you have a jigsaw puzzle and there are pieces missing. No one had reported on them simply because they were ordinary people. There's not a file on them at the Library of Congress. So I spent four years finding itty-bitty pieces. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Pod County. I'm your host, Kyle Grantham. This is episode 16, and we're back in, in pretty, pretty quick succession compared to how long it's been since we've been able to roll out multiple episodes. We have got author Kathy Canavan in for this episode. Kathy is a former news journal reporter back in the 70s, 80s, uh, also freelanced for USA Today, the Philadelphia Inquirer, Newsweek, bunch of bunch of great national publications. She's also done a ton of volunteer work around the area, but she also is an accomplished author. Her first book details Lincoln's final hours and the people around him as he was dying after his assassination. And she's working on another book that comes out this fall on infamous true crimes of Philadelphia. So keep an eye out for that. We'll talk about that a little bit in the podcast today. This is one of a string of episodes we're working on right now. We also have two other guests scheduled to come in before the end of the month. So we are we are trying to get episodes moving out the door again and get Pod County back in your ears pretty frequently. So sit back and enjoy this interview with Kathy Canavan. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to another episode of Pod County. I'm your host, Kyle Grantham, and we are joined today by Kathy Canavan, a phenomenal author of historical nonfiction, correct? Yes. Yes, correct. And we also have Brian Cunningham, our communications director extraordinaire who inspired this recording today. So he wanted to come and ask a bunch of questions because he's a big history nerd. That's right, Kyle. Kathy's brought an entire encyclopedia worth of notes that she, because she does not want to be unprepared at all, which I greatly appreciate. When we do like interviews like this, we like to fact check them sometimes and make sure we didn't put anything like false out there. With all your notes, I don't think we're going to have to do that. It's we're, not that important for historians to be accurate, right? It's, well, you know, not usually. No. No. <laughs> you know, history is what you make it. Uh, it's written by the victors, generally. So really, how accurate is history at any, any point in time? Let's talk about you, Kathy. Give me, give me some of your background. Where did you grow up? Where are you from? Uh, I grew up in Rocky Hill, a little town next, uh, a little hill on the side of Princeton in New Jersey. We'll and forgive you. It's okay. <laughs> the best. I came to work at the news journal. I came here to work at the news journal in the 70s, actually. Back when the news journal was in its heyday. Yeah, very much. It was, uh, uh, it was, they were sending eight reporters, I believe, or six reporters to the uh, Democrat and Republican conventions. It was really a strong paper. For those who, who are too young, like myself, because I, I wasn't born until 1988, but I know from my appreciation of photography and photo history, the News Journal in the 1970s was one of the premier newspapers in America. It had, hands down, one of the best photo staffs in America, uh, multiple Photographer of the Year winners, Pulitzer finalists, best of photojournalism winners, and just an absolute rock star staff. Several went on to major publications like National Geographic. It was the place, again, you know, from my perspective as a former photographer, the place to work. Now, a lot of that photography doesn't happen without great writers there to help you get those stories happening. So, I mean, top to bottom, phenomenal place to work. It really was. It was one of the 100 biggest papers in the country at that time. And I think it had five, I may be wrong, National Photographers of the Year. So it, everything was illustrated really, really well. Big, great photo stories. And they truly covered everything, every aspect of Delaware. We're a far cry from that now, unfortunately. But I like to think of the 1970s newsrooms, you know, all the president's men type atmospheres what was it what was it like in the 1970s newsrooms was it smoky was it 
well, profanity-laden. Everyone had a, a bottle of whiskey on their yeah. desk or in their desk. It was. I mean, I remember covering elections where there would be a fairly large room and they, it just packed with dozens of people, and you needed to find a certain politician who won or lost, but you couldn't see through the smoke. You just have to say, where's so-and-so? Where's, have you seen so-and-so? And work your way across the room. It was... It was so much fun. I sat next to Bill Frank, who then was a legend. In fact, the newspaper has the Bill Frank room, and there was the Bill Frank dinner for many years to raise money for scholarships. Well, I sat next to, you called the publisher Brian, but you called Mr. Frank, Mr. Frank. You didn't, you didn't call him Bill. And he loved to smoke, although he did have an oxygen tank, a small oxygen <laughs> tank. Seems safe to me. <laughs> and, and Always have open flames around oxygen tanks. And then OSHA was invented. <laughs> uh, and he, he would also have these egg salad sandwiches. Oh, my God. And he wouldn't finish them because somebody would call it the story. So he'd go off, and then he'd throw papers on top of them. So three days later, <laughs> you, and, and he had a little trick. Um, the guy who sat on on his right, I sat on his left, he, if he knew somebody was calling in with a good story, he wanted to keep his phone open. So he would reach over and get his <laughs> phone or reach over and get my phone. That's pretty funny. And uh, the fellow on the right really disliked it, and he would spray his phone with Lysol. Because <laughs> it's not like cigarettes and eggs and three-day-old egg salad sandwiches. <laughs> oh, and the worst part was when he come in and he'd be looking for some notes. He'd say, where are those notes? Where are those notes? And egg salad would go over <laughs> your typewriter. Oh, my God. How, how was it as a woman in those newsrooms? Did you have someone that you connected with who you'd be able to, you know, like a mentor or anything? How much like Mad Men was it? I think that's what Brian's <laughs> getting um, at. There was, it was just fun. Um, there, there were... At that point, there were no other women on the Metro desk. I was on Met, you know, hey, get me, hey, sweetheart, get me rewrite. And I'd say, like, I am rewrite. No, no one would actually say that. But I was the only woman. But it was just great. In fact, I just visited my editor last week. I mean, we were just a really good group, and it was fun. It, it was just crazy, though. Uh, we'd all come in at 5.30 in the morning, and somebody would bring breakfast, and we'd just call people at 6 a.m. and get them out of the shower to rewrite the morning news for the evening journal. So back in the day, for those who aren't, don't know, it used to be commonplace for a city to have a morning paper and an evening paper. So a paper that come out with the, the things that happened last night, and then you'd have an evening paper with the things that had happened that day. And generally, if you had a big story that had run in the, the morning paper, you were going to update it for the evening paper. So the, the rewrite term comes in. And then largely, it became pretty hard to sustain both a morning and an evening paper in the same town with advertising. Uh, you're, you're going to the same market. Morning papers typically won out. They're, I, don't, I can't imagine there's any evening papers that exist anymore in a digital age, but uh, evening papers died a while ago. And it, more often than not, if they were two separate entities, they merged into one, right? The, the, the Wilmington News Journal was the morning news and the evening journal. Yes. Yeah. Uh-huh. So that was, that was the, the merger there. Anyway, as you were saying, it was, a, it was a crazy time. It was a crazy place to work. It was a good time. Uh, Ralph Moyet and Otto Deckham worked there at the same time I did. Otto, who people may not remember, was a restaurant reviewer. But he worked for the State Department prior to that. And the rumor was that he was the person who gave Senator Joe McCarthy the names of the communists. Oh, great. Um, he later taught a course at the University of Delaware simply called Conversations with Otto Deckham. People would pay just to hear Otto talk. Uh, and then there was Ralph Moyed. Otto was on one side of the political spectrum, and Ralph was way on the other side. And Ralph was a good friend, and he would come up and chat, and then Otto would come up and say, no, 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 that's not right, and I'd be trying to type a story, and they'd both <laughs> be on either side. Crossfire before 24-hour cable news. That's pretty good. Coming in to, to Delaware, you're, you're at the News Journal. It's, uh, it's, it's the, the golden heyday age of newspapers. Take me through your, your career a bit there. How long were you at the Journal, and, and what was it like? I went to the News Journal. I covered the Gentleman Bandit case, which was Father Bernie Pagano, 
uh, was arrested for a lot of little stick-ups along Concord Pike. And Carl Schnee, who unfortunately died recently, Carl did a great job of, of um, defending Bernie, and he got him off, and another man confessed. And I went to interview the man who confessed, Ron Clauser, in prison. And I asked him, I, you know, of course I had researched all of the stick-ups because I covered them. And I asked him, well, Ron, what was so-and-so wearing the day you robbed him? And he had everything down, like this, this, this. And I said, Ron, what, was you, what were you wearing? And he'd go, uh, uh, nothing. And he, for instance, said that he, I said, where'd you park? And he said, I parked behind the place. Well, that week, the parking lot was blocked off for repaving. Mm. So, the, you know, all these questions. And then you feed in a fellow named Jerry Burke, great former NSA bureau chief, who was Father Pagano's best friend from college. And he was in the mix, and he, I, I became friends with Jerry until he died about 10 years ago. And it was interesting how everyone's opinions of who did it changed for the next several decades. Sure. And it's still it's still a hot topic. Yeah, uh, one, of, one, of, one of the great Delaware mysteries. Sure. So did you ever get called into court to, to testify after you conducted these interviews with the person that, or, or did that person end up serving the term? Oh, no, no. Clouser uh, ended up serving the term, Ron Clouser. And then he sold used cars later. Went on to an illustrious career of automobile, uh, automobile sales. But, but the priest never, he, he, was, he was exonerated or never, never yeah, went Father, to Yeah, Father Pagano was reassigned to a parish in Raritan, New Jersey. And, and I think the News Journal just rehashed those articles with Patty Tallarico a few months ago, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, so last year, if any of our right. listeners do want to go back for a deeper dive into the Gentleman Bandit case, they can, they can go ahead and, and give a read there. So you, the Gentleman Bandit was one of the biggest stories that you, you covered in, the, in that decade? Well, you have to realize that it was the 70s, and it was a Catholic priest, and there was a different thought about Catholic priests in the 70s. It was a worldwide story. There was a paper in London that paid me $500 a week just to mail them my clips. Good deal. Wow. On every Friday. <laughs> that I is mean. the easiest $500. <laughs> <laughs> and and I, back then, five that was probably like $1,000 well, That now. was a lot. <laughs> I cleared it with my editors. They were. They said, you're just mailing them your clips. That's it? I said, yes, I am. Okay. Good deal. Man. When you mentioned the gentleman Bandit and you, you mentioned um, Bill Frank, the Delaware is known for a lot of their, a lot of political interesting characters and, and other interesting characters throughout the decades. And you've been around for a little bit and you've been able to see and cover them. Who, who are a couple of the other characters that stick out in your mind, both political media, anyone else that you covered? Uh, John Taylor. John Taylor is just a wonderful person. And really, you could count on John too come up with something you didn't expect whenever you were in a group. He uh, was very forthright about many things. And he was the edit one of the editors? He, he was the editorial editor mm -hmm. for, for quite a long mm -hmm. time. Mm -hmm. And Ken Lockerbie. Mm -hmm. Ken Lockerbie was my Metro Desk editor, and uh, he, he was the quintessential newsman. This was back when you would there were no computers, so people would take a piece of typing paper, paste it to another one, to another one, and you might have 20 pages pasted together, and he'd lift them up and go, Canavan, cut this to two inches. <laughs> <laughs> you just take the first two inches, and that's the end of the day. So, so you spent a good amount of time at the News Journal, and then you, you took a break. I, I, I actually left a couple times. They were very kind about letting me take leaves of absence because both of my parents had chronic illnesses. And I finally left in 1990 because my mother had a very large stroke mm. and was paralyzed on one side of her body. So when my husband was free to take care of her and our two sons, I would freelance for the Inquirer, or I would freelance for USA Today or a magazine. But other than that, 
I just did volunteer work when I could. Mm -hmm. So you mentioned the Philadelphia Inquirer, and well, you 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 have a book that's been out now for two years called Abraham Lincoln: The Final. Tell me the exact title. I don't know. Ab uh, Lincoln's final Lincoln's hours. Final hours. There we go. I was so close. You were. You <laughs> were like almost there. Twenty-three percent accurate mm -hmm. on the. Uh, <laughs> And that and and that's published and that's available Amazon and any anywhere you can get your your books at fine local book retailers. <laughs> yes, shop it's, local. Mm -hmm. It's a University Press of Kentucky, and it's just the last nine hours of President Lincoln's life when he was taken across the street from Ford's Theater to Peterson's Boarding House, which was really just a place to make him comfortable. Mm -hmm. uh, the doctors knew that you know he was going to die, that he couldn't be saved, but. It was Good Friday on the Christian calendar, and they knew it wouldn't work politically for a president to die in a theater in 1865 on Good Friday, mm -hmm. the holiest day of the year for Christians. So they, they totaled him across to Peterson's. And there, what I wanted to do was write about all these ordinary people who surrounded the president, because the place was packed. People just kept him walking in and out of the bedroom all night from around 10.30 at night to 7 a.m. when he died. So you had neighbors bringing pillows. You had the boarders who lived. It was a four-story building, and there were boarders all over. There were soldiers. There were uh, newspaper people, socialite friends of Mary uh, Lincoln. Some uh, There were doctors, uh, many doctors surrounding the bed. So they they all saw some little part of that. And I think of it like when you have a jigsaw puzzle and there are pieces missing. No one had reported on them simply because they were ordinary people. There's not a file on them at the Library of Congress. So I spent four years finding itty-bitty pieces, calling people in like California and saying, hi, your great-great-uncle was. And people would go, no, he wasn't. Hang up. When, Hang when you're... Thinking about something like that, is it something that comes to you in a dream or an early morning, like <laughs> lucid thought that says, you know, no one ever talked about the people that surrounded it. I've never, let me jump on the computer and see if there's anything. No, there's not. There's a real window of opportunity for me to really explore something. Have you always been a Lincoln buff? Like, how do you get to the idea of Lincoln, but then drill down you know, four or five layers into just his last eight hours. Well, remember that newspapers at this point, this was uh, 2011, newspapers were in the bucket. So I was not going to be, although my mom had died, I was not going to be able to get a job full-time on a newspaper again. All the people who said come back anytime were long retired or died. And uh, so I, um, I went, I was working for AARP, in Washington, their office is right around the corner from Ford's Theater, and I had a little downtime. Well, Ford's Theater in the basement, the National Park Service has one of the best museums ever. They have the gun that shot Lincoln. They have the masks the assassins wore on their way. They have all of John Wilkes Booth's guns. They have the coffee cup that President Lincoln left on the windowsill when he went to Ford's. They have his clothes, Mrs. Lincoln's opera glasses. So I went down there, and you get a free ticket to go to Ford's Theater, and it includes a trip to Peterson's house across the street. So I went through the museum, and I went over to Peterson's house, and it was an excellent National Park Service person there, and she told me all about the borders, and I said, in that bookstore, can I get a book about them? And she goes, oh, no, they were just ordinary. <laughs> I thought, well, I'm ordinary, <laughs> you know. So I thought she had to be wrong. So I asked her for the names of the boarders, and after I finished my AARP interview, I literally ran all the way to the Library of Congress, and I put all of their names through, and I thought, no one's written about these people. And I thought, well, this will be a good article. Maybe I could sell it to Smithsonian or something like that. But then uh, the more I looked, the more, the more interested I was. I just kept doing it and doing it. And I realized I've got enough for a book. Isn't that the great thing about journalism is you can like start down one seemingly shallow rabbit hole 
And the next thing you know, you're in Alice's Wonderland. <laughs> it is just, it's, it's, I love that little bit. And it's one thing I really miss about where you can start pulling a thread and next thing you know, you've got a whole sweater. I, I started feeling that I knew these people and I wanted their story to be told. And I really think that they fill in that jigsaw puzzle. I think the most interesting thing that I found was Mr. Peterson himself. He owned the boarding house. He was a German immigrant who was doing quite well because he was a tailor, and he was tailoring soldiers' uniforms mm. during the Civil War. And he owned the boarding house. And after President Lincoln died, but before he was even buried, Mr. Peterson sent a bill to the federal government. He wanted nine hours' rent for the time the president stayed in this little sloped-roofed bedroom in the back of his house. And he charged for every single piece of linen soiled by the president's blood. He even charged for his own time, but he skipped out around midnight, and the president didn't die until 7. Did he get his money? He did. He got $293 from the War Department, but somebody scribbled kind of a snippy note on it to let him know there's no more money. As one would probably expect. That's yeah. that's pretty that's pretty crazy. And it, again, you know, in this this time, $290? $293.50. I'm sure he probably rounded that up. <laughs> he probably worked in a bunch of uh, fluff. Was yeah. that was a lot of money? I'm gonna do. I'm gonna do some quick. You guys talk. I'm gonna do some quick math. I want to figure <laughs> yeah. out what that is after inflation. Do you, well, do you think Mr. Peterson regretted invoicing them for that amount of money? What do you think it was just his his business acumen, or I can't imagine people were banging down his door to get into that room, and he was he was seeing it as lost income. Well, he was a weird Jeez. duck. Uh, some some of his great 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 nephew, niece, I've forgotten, came to one of my talks, and they were the loveliest people. And they, they had emailed me that we, we're going to get your book and we're going to come to your talk because we are the great, great, great of William Peterson. And I said, well, why don't you read the book? Yeah, you maybe come? just Because uh, I'm like, uh, oh, no. I don't know if you want to drive all that way. <laughs> well, this particular talk was a fundraiser for a historic group in Maryland, and I thought, oh, no, (laughs) no, because there were going to be a lot of people there. Did they come? And they did come, and like I said, they were delightful, and they did read the book first. They took my advice, and they came up, and I said, "Uh, uh, sorry about, and they said, oh, don't worry, there's one in every family. (laughs) That's great. So uh, you guys want to take a guess at what $293.50 is in today's money? Go ahead, Kathy. No idea. <laughs> uh, you got throw 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 any number at me. Five thousand dollars. Five thousand dollars. We got five thousand dollars over here. <laughs> These are we're, we're doing prices right rules. Eleven thousand. Prices right dollars. rules. All right, you're both you're both over because it's forty eight hundred forty eight sixty two. That was close. Yeah. I should so, get that. I mean, forty eight. <laughs> Surprise! We got you a five thousand dollar check. <laughs> forty eight hundred dollars. It's not. I mean, like I'm I'm trying to think. Like if this tragedy happened today. It's not an insignificant amount of money if it was like actual damage to my house. But how much actual damage happened to Peterson's house, right? Like he would have been fine without getting sheets and pillows aren't free. They well, aren't. But there was one thing. No, he didn't break the window. Mr. Peterson came home and I mean, it did smell terrible. Think about, you know, a, a, a hospital in a in a head wound. But other than that, you know, it wasn't visually awful. Well, Mr. Peterson came in, and he noticed some blood on the pillow under the dead president's head. He grabbed the pillow, threw open the window, and threw it out into the rain in the courtyard behind his house. The people who were watching him had stood there for nine hours watching the president die. Oh, God. So... But I, I, I'm glad I brought notes because I wanted to tell you that Eric Larson 
who wrote The Devil in the White City. I love Eric Larson. Uh, he, he's tremendous. Dead Weight is one of my favorite books. It, it made me loathe Woodrow Wilson. It, it is, just, oh. isn't it? Yeah, yes. well, I did before. And, it and made, now yes. I really do, yeah. <laughs> and it's even better. It's an audio book. I read it both oh, ways. Yeah. Because in the audio book, it goes back and forth. Lusitania, uh, Submarine, Lusitania, Submarine. And it, it's very exciting. Oh, wow. Uh, I'll have to check but, it out. But Eric wrote, it reviewed my book, and he wrote, Peterson's move must rank as the single most petty act by any individual in the history of America. This is that's what gets me too. Like Peterson so very clearly did not care that the president was dying in his boarding house. And to me, like even if you didn't support Lincoln and you were pro-Confederacy or whatever, the fact that the, the president of the United States is in your home and dying and you do not care at all and you are like that petty about it, what like level of scumbag you must be as a person? Well, there is a, there's an overlay though. This was the Friday night the last night of celebrating the end of the Civil War. It killed 700,000 Americans. Sure. People were celebrating so much that they were hoarse from singing, and they'd been celebrating since Sunday, and Friday was going to be the big blowout. And Mr. Peterson was a drinker, and he probably had plans that night. Now, he told his son he was going to his tailoring shop, and that is where his son found him asleep early the next morning. So perhaps that was true. I don't know. But I think a lot of people, th this just threw Washington into pandemonium because not only was President Lincoln attacked, but Secretary Seward was attacked in his bed. So people running uphill from Seward's house, you know, there weren't any cell phones. So they're running uphill from Seward's house to tell the president Seward has been attacked when people running downhill come with the news that Lincoln has been shot. So it was, it was just a crazy night. And from the bricks of Mr. Peterson's house over to the bricks of Ford's Theater, you couldn't, you had to squeeze through. And many of those people were armed. So it was, it was a nuts night. How was President Lincoln transported from the theater to the Peterson boarding house? That's in question exactly what they put him on, but soldiers carried him across, and Dr. Leal, this very young doctor who, to me, was the hero of the night, he was the first, because he was so young, he was able to jump over the seats and get into the box and examine the president before anyone else, and Mrs. Lincoln was very grateful for him. He was very nice to Mrs. Lincoln, who actually, once the president was shot, she was holding his hand, and she felt him slipping. And she looked, and she realized something happened to him. She jumped on the floor and tried to hold him up in the seat, just instinctively. And then Dr. Leal came in, and their theater companions, Major Rathbone, and his fiancée, who strangely was also his stepsister, um, they were in... Buried the lead on that one. Yeah, yeah. Um, he, Major Rathbone, ran to Dr. Leal and said, my arm, because Booth had slashed his entire, his arm where, where it was lax, got the tendons. And Dr. Leal looked in his eye, saw that he was stable, and said, wait a minute, and went to the president. And Mrs. Lincoln was so grateful for him that night and how kind he was to her that she gave him a special place in the funeral procession. John Wilkes Booth was one of the biggest celebrities at the time, mm -hmm. right? And I sure remember was. reading in your book that... Well, and his father was legendary. And his brother, Edwin. Correct, As, yeah. as Shakespearean actors. Yeah. President Lincoln wanted to meet him a few times. President yes. Lincoln was also a fan. Mm -hmm. And and did did John Booth ever meet him? No, before? he he tried not to. He he was very close to the president, and there are some great photos someone found of this. Uh, when Lincoln gave his second inaugural, John Wilkes Booth was dating a senator's daughter, actually an abolitionist senator's daughter, and she got him tickets to the inauguration and he was directly behind the president, but up higher. 
and later he told friends, I, I would have had an excellent chance to kill the president then if I had chosen. It's just so a creepy, bit isn't it? Yeah. But. John Wilkes Booth, his, his family at least, I don't know, I think he had a very brief time. Their home is in, in Churchville. Maryland, correct? A uh, Bel Air. Bel, yeah, it's right, it, same yeah, thing. Yeah, almost. yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Pretty much. Uh, I've I've been there once. It's a not a large home for you know for people who are the equivalent of modern day movie stars. But the property was at one point fairly expansive. But how do you go from you know someone who's a a, a renowned thespian to this just anti everything? Right? He was so anti government, anti establishment, anti everything Lincoln stood for. How does that happen? Well, uh, John Wilkes Booth's dad died before he could really teach him to act. Edwin went around the country with his father, and he met thespians. He watched his father, and he became an amazing actor. But John didn't get any of that. But Edwin set him up in Philadelphia, and John flubbed his first chance, and then he flubbed his second chance. And then Ed, a friend of Edwin set him up in Richmond, Virginia, and the audience loved John. And John was had an ego, and he went with the group who stomped their feet and cheered for him. And he was very different than everyone else in his family. Everyone else was were unionists. And his father was, uh, when he wasn't drinking, a very gentle, spiritual man. He was also crazy. He came home from one trip and found that one of his children had died, and he had the servants dig him up so he could breathe life back into him. It, it didn't work. No, um, it didn't. No, no, it did not. I am surprised. But, but, um, but John became a Southern sympathizer. To some extent, John was so desperate for that adulation, right, to, to mm-hmm. feel accepted, to, to, to realize the same fame that his father and his brother had, that he would kind of do anything to maintain it. And exactly. then And then eventually drank the Kool-Aid. And, there, you know, there's two schools of thought. Some people think John was mentally ill. Some people think he was extremely selfish. I would fall in the latter category. I would imagine you have to be somewhat of both, right? You have to have some delusion uh, or some delusion in your personality to think that what you're going to do in in assassinating another human, especially the president of the United States, is a justifiable act. The thing that amazed me about John Wilkes Booth is he took his keys with him when he went to kill the president. If you were to kill the president... Would you ever think you were going to go back to your house or you need your car key? Especially, I mean, he was part of a large conspiracy, right? It wasn't him acting alone. There were nine. Several safe houses, right, that he was being transported to or were tried to get Mm -hmm. to. What what was the final total of the number of people indicted in that? I think it was nine. Well, there there were four who were hanged. I'm thinking nine as well, yeah. but I, I may be missing so, so much. So even if you think you're going to get away, do you not think at some point one of those other people are going to give you up, right, to save themselves? It just that, that level of arrogance is pretty amazing. Oh, well, actually, it was worse than that. Booth's best friend was a comic at Ford's Theater named John Matthews. They had grown up together in Maryland, in Baltimore. For He lived in Baltimore for a while. They'd grown up together, and he saw Matthews on that Friday, that morning, and he gave him a letter, and he said, look, if I'm not around tomorrow morning, would you mail this to the newspaper? And what it was was a confession to killing the president. His manifesto, Matthews had no idea. He just put it in his pocket. But he also took the liberty of adding all the other conspirators' names (laughs) without asking them. No honor. Yeah. Mm-mm. Just in case Mm-mm. you were wondering who else helped me with this, here are their names, addresses. Just wanted to shout out all the people. I couldn't have done this by myself. <laughs> Dates so. of birth. There's their home addresses. Social security. What we have social security. Twitter handles. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> here are their email passwords. So, so you start writing this and, and you start getting really into it and, and going down several rabbit holes, I'm sure, meeting families and, and kind of opening up these little vaults. 
so you you have what you think is a book. Do you do you contact the University of Kentucky Publishing before, after, in the middle, and send them your first twenty pages and say, "Hey, <laughs> you like this?" Well, no. What actually what happened is, you know, I am, have a friend who is who's a very successful author, and I asked her, and she said, "You need to go to an editor." So I went to one of those pay-as-you-go editors and asked her, and she said, "Actually." I love it, but it's going to be really hard to get it published because right now they're doing political celebrities, they're doing, you know, sports stars. Uh, they're not doing, you know, because by then famous people had gotten into the history book game. And she said, you're going to, you can get it published, but what you're going to need is a really strong forward by a really well-known person. Well, I called the historian at the Surratt Society, and I said, Laurie, would you do it? And she says, no, they don't need me. They need a really strong person. And I said, well, I don't know any of them. And she goes, well, I do. Who would you like? And, and I thought... President. Of, <laughs> I, I, well, I thought of, like, who are the top Lincoln writers? Uh, well, Dr. Ed Steers and Michael Kaufman. And I said, uh, Michael Kaufman or Ed Steers would be nice. And she goes, okay, I'll email them. And I said, you know them? She goes, yeah, uh, uh, who would you like most? I said, uh, Ed Steers. Blood, he wrote Blood on the Moon. So she wrote to him, and he's an amazing character. He was once one of the top people at the National Institutes for Health. But he quit that career in his 50s to write a Lincoln book and his first one was a bestseller. Anyway, she, she wrote to him, put him in touch, and I didn't know at this time that Ed is a very kind person, and Laurie would sometimes send him five or ten people a month. I thought I was the only one, <laughs> and even then I thought it was an imposition. Well, I start sending, he says, Dear Ms. Canavan, please send me three or four of your pages. So I said, Dear Dr. Steers, here they are. Then he said, send me one chapter. And then he goes, send me three chapters. Yeah, at and this then, point, you're like, here's the book. <laughs> yeah. Well, then he says, give me your entire book and all of your endnotes. And I'm thinking, then I'm just giving him everything, my research. Oh, well, it's not going anywhere anyway. Okay. So I said, I don't hear anything from him for like five weeks. And then I get a little note, Kathy. I think this should. Uh, I think this should be published, and I'll help Ed. <laughs> and after that, like, he's just a fabulous person. That's amazing. And he just orchestrated everything. And he said, "Where would you like it published?" And I said, "Well, my husband John Sweeney is reads constantly, and he said you don't want a commercial publisher. You want an academic publisher because they'll leave it." on their backlist forever. They won't remainder it. You won't see it on that card at Borders in five weeks. So I said, how about University of Illinois or University of Kentucky? Because he was born in one place and became famous in the other. And uh, Ed said, I have contacts at Kentucky. And it was a very long, drawn-out process. And they have committees that they have. First, they have historians who look at it before they even bring it to the committee. Sure. So it took forever. And then this one Friday, I was going to be told if they wanted it or not. And they said they'd tell me by 5. And I'll wait till 5 o'clock. I thought, oh, well, I'm going to BJ's because we needed <laughs> dinner. So I'm in BJ's, and our son calls me from California. And he says, did you get it? And I said, no, honey, I didn't get it. And he says, well, wait, check again. I said, I'm not going to check again. You know, they said 5 o'clock, and I don't even have a computer. He says, you have your phone. Check mm -hmm. your email. So I said, okay, and I'm in the chicken aisle. I look, and I said, oh, my God, it's a contract. Nice. <laughs> and, and he said, I knew it. And so I, you know, finished my shopping and went home. And, you know, and So and how long after the, that book gets published did you start moving on to the next book? Well, there was a lot, um, they set up a lot of um, uh, publicity tours and that sort of thing. And I write at a little desk in a corner of my living room in sweat clothes. And then suddenly, I'm flying to Chicago 
two Saturdays in a row, all dressed up to speak. And then I'm, at, I'm talking to senators and White House officials at the Lincoln Group of Washington, and C-SPAN is filming me. I mean, I really had to, I'm a writer, not a talker. So, you know, it was, it, it was quite a transformation. And so I did all that. And then I was going to, the Delaware Division of the Arts gave me amazing support as a first time author. And they were really helpful in me writing a second book on the women of the assassination. And I had been out to California. I was searching these women where they wound up. And I'd been like all over the country checking them out. And I got a call from Lions Press, which is an imprint of Globe Pequot. And this editor asked me if I would do a true crime book on Philadelphia. And I said, no, I don't do true crime books. And I write about the Lincoln assassination. And she said, the Lincoln assassination is the most important true crime in America. Sure, true. And I realized that Lyons does true crime with footnotes. You know, everything is documented. And uh, I agreed to do it. And uh, then I, I started on that. And at first, I didn't want to do it. But my husband, John, was a history major. And he's a native Philadelphian. And he said, you've got to do it. You've got to do it. And you wrote for the Enquirer. And, he said, well, the, the, the big story I did for the Enquirer was actually on murder houses. Um, so, so again, you were already doing true crime <laughs> yeah, just <it> everywhere, <laughs> plus, plus your work on The Gentleman Bandit. This really was your wheelhouse. I hadn't thought of that. Yeah. Don't John, pigeonhole her. I'm not. I wouldn't do it. John said that, that Philadelphia was more than 300 years old, and there, it, it is the city of brotherly love, but there were plenty of really intriguing crime stories, and I should look. And he was so right. So the, I started. There's an arsenic murder ring. Philadelphia is like the city of firsts, like the first hospital, the first volunteer fire department. But it's also the first kidnapping, first bank robbery, the first time Al Capone was ever in a prison cell. Two of Willie Sutton's daring prison escapes were in Philadelphia. Eastern, Eastern State's a pretty cool place, right? Oh, it is. It is. I urge everybody to go on the tour, which includes a, a copy of your book. A recon- well, oh. no, not that, but a, a reconstructed cell for Al, Al uh-huh. Capone and his roomie. Now, have you have you talked to the bookshop about uh, the gift shop at Eastern State and of having your book in the in the uh, gift shop? No, I haven't. That's a great <laughs> idea. <laughs> Brian, uh, any openings in your managerial schedule? I'm just the just marketing. I just pitching. every once in a while, I come up with a half baked idea and let someone else do all the work. Yeah. That's all I do. Yeah, I I lived in Philadelphia for about twelve years. Yeah, there's a lot of lot you can do there on on true crime. So what what were some of the Everybody knows the Al Capone Eastern State Penitentiary Mm -hmm. uh, story, but what was the first bank robbery? The first bank robbery was actually in Carpenter's Hall, and it was during the yellow fever when people were trying to get out of, of Philadelphia. And the first kidnapping was in Germantown, but you have to bring yourself back to then, and I'm trying to think what date it was. Uh, let's see. 1874. So what happened was little Charlie Ross, this little blonde four-year-old, was playing in the yard of his mansion, and the view of the kids was obstructed by some bushes. There were servants who were caring for them. But it, see, it didn't really matter then because no child had ever been kidnapped, ever. And no police officer had ever handled a ransom case. It just wasn't a problem. In fact, when Charlie Ross's dad and his uncle went to the police station, the police thought they were either drunk or joking. And they just laughed it off. And Mr. Ross, who knew that a neighbor said uh, two men took their son away in a wagon, he had to search on his own for several days until ransom notes started showing up, 20 of them in all. And up until that day, though, it, it, 
kidnapping wasn't a thing, but very quickly it changed and it became the biggest story, crime story in Philadelphia history to this day. It was in the headlines for 50 years. That's wow. unbelievable. Did they find that? Did they find Charlie? Charlie vanished forever, but people, a half million people from like Australia to England to California, searched had some small assist in mm-hmm. searching for Charlie. Charlie's dad actually went to New England, and he was searching clues. People would write to him, and he would check it out. And he saw at a fair, he saw a wax museum, and there was a sign that said the Charlie Ross family. So he went inside, and he said, who are these people? I am Mr. Ross. Mm -hmm. And he showed the gentleman his ID, and he said, I'm really sorry. It's just, it's such a big seller that I took uh, figures from other exhibits and made your family. But if you would agree, if Charlie's found and you'll exhibit him here, I'll give you $10,000. That's insane. First thing I'm going to do when I find my kid is bring him to a wax museum. That's insane. Display. Yes, that sounds very crazy. But, but, I mean, Charlie was, George F. Kaufman wrote Charlie into a play. There was a song, Bring Back Our Darling. It was a very popular, the equivalent of 1950s top 40 song. Everyone was talking about Charlie. Pinkertons were chasing him, but nobody found him. Pinkertons at the time being like private detectives, yes. the Pinkerman detective. Yes. Yeah, they were unsuccessful, totally. And the story just stayed in the headlines. New Charlies kept, people kept showing up purporting to be Charlie. Uh, one of them born after Charlie was kidnapped. The whole thing, really, Charlie never left the headlines until he, it was, the whole thing was supplanted by the kidnapping of Charles Lindbergh Jr., another little blonde Charlie. And then 50 years, 1924, I think, 50, about 50 years later, Leopold and Loeb, were inspired by it to kidnap little Bobby Franks and commit the perfect crime, although it didn't work out for them. Right. How about any uh, organized crime stories in your in your upcoming? Tell me, tell me the name of the upcoming book and when it's going to be available. Tricked you. I got I threw you a curveball. So you That's can't see this, but Kathy has like seventeen <laughs> stacks, different stacks of sheets of paper we're, we're, with all we're, her notes we're on it. Warming her up for her next publicity tour, or doing her final right. uh, interview from uh, the Lincoln book. This I is mean, how this is how you know she's a former journalist too, because this is what every writer's desk looks like. I'm a hundred percent. I'm embarrassed to say that the problem is. Book titles are very long now. Mm. I think of it as True Crime Philadelphia, but my notes show it's True Crime Philadelphia from America's first bank robbery to the real-life killers who inspired Boardwalk Empire. So you got, that's your, that's your head subhead, right? Right, right. Okay, yeah. that's not yeah, just yeah, yeah, one yeah, headline. That yeah. would be, there's a colon in there somewhere. Mm-hmm. Who do you have doing the forward for that? Mayor Rendell? <laughs> Governor Rendell? Uh, well, I... I there's not going to be a forward. I wrote, well, there's a forward. I wrote it though. But there's a great blurbist. I can't tell you blurbist. who it is right now. But a blurbist. A Michael Smirkanish. Um, Did I guess right? Smirkanish. Mm, no, I mean, yeah. if you guess, I can't tell okay. you. But okay. no, it's not him. <laughs> Brian, stop making her, uh, stop making her try to tell you stuff. Angela Cataldi. <laughs> Brian. <laughs> Bad Brian. No. <laughs> She's protecting her source. So you're so you're you're preparing for for your next release. Did we did we establish when it's when it's available? Yes, uh, November first. November first. Well, actually, it's available now on pre-order on Amazon and Lions Press. Okay, so available now. Get on Amazon, search it. It's got the world's longest headline. And Pod, Pod County will be her first interview about the book. I, I was going to say, is this your your first stop on the press tour then? Yes, it is. Hey, all right, we're first at were something. You, were you a big Boardwalk Empire fan? Was I? Yes. I haven't watched it. You've never I'm watched awful. it. I'm awful. I'm awful. Here's the other thing. From Baltimore, seen like three episodes of The Wire. Well, that's a... I know. Really? It, here's my thing. As a journalist, you should be more One, ashamed. one, I was like 11 when it came out. Okay, it's two. It's still available, though. Two, it is, but it's in three by four, and it's just hard to get into. They really need to remaster it. Like, it's hard to... The Wire. Like, I can't Do go... Do not touch The Wire. Look, I can't watch The West Wing... Because again, like it's just it's so filmed like a '90s TV show. It's just it's hard. 
It's hard to get into. But the wire is classic. I know, I know. And Boardwalk Empire is. I will say Boardwalk Empire is like very, that, here's the other thing. Ready, ready? Haven't watched The Sopranos either. Okay. You know, like all these things. I haven't either. No, but all these shows that everybody's like, oh, they're like the best shows. They're on my list, I swear. I got to stop watching trashy garbage shows first. So Boardwalk Empire is, is the character that, the real life character is he based off of Nucky Thompson, or is, who is he based off of? Uh, no, remember the uh, murderous Delessio brothers? The yes. Pius, Leo, Ignatius. Well, they actually even took their first names, uh, and these are the Lanzetta brothers mm-hmm. from South Philly. There were six of them. Uh, several of them were named after popes, but the reporters of the day, who were great, pointed out that all the similarities stopped uh. there. <laughs> Nothing <laughs> pious. They, they, the police called them everything, white slavers, bootleggers, murderers, but no Lanzetta ever served more than, uh, ever was convicted of a crime that carried more than a 10-year sentence. They, they arrested him more than 100 times. In fact, Tio was arrested five times in one week, hmm. two of them on the same day. That's a bad day. They even arrested him for vagrancy, but the judge said no. He was way too well dressed to be a vagrant. <laughs> to be a vagrant. <laughs> so, so was that a, was that due to good lawyering or shoddy uh, criminal justice? Both. Yeah. Yeah. It was. It was. It was like a Keystone Cops thing, but it was also. It was also they had lots of money. Yeah, money will get you out of pretty Every, much everything. Never yep. had it, so I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> Not something you have to worry about, or I have to worry about, I'm right. sure. We're good. But they ended up a lot like the killers on um, on HBO. Leo was shot coming out of his bar. Five guys jumped out of a touring car. Each one shot him once, and he died. Everybody got a piece. Um, trying to think. Pius, Pius was shot at a candy shop. He was putting a straw into a, a, a soda they obviously never got to drink. Oh. And a willy was the most interesting. His body was stuffed into two potato bags <laughs> and strapped oh to a touring car. It's actually pretty impressive <laughs> if you can fit an entire body in two potato bags. Well, you think one was for the top part and one was for the bottom I mean, part. we're talking like five-pound potato bags, right? Did they chop him up and put him in? I mean, like a body weighs more than ten pounds. That's uh, uh, no. That's chopping. where the term. <laughs> that's where the term came from. Five pounds and uh, ten, yeah, 10 pounds, pounds and a five, five pound bag. bag. <laughs> no, no. <laughs> no um, we'll, we'll, never coming we'll back. Thank you. We're, we'll be here all week. Please tip your waiters. Yeah. <laughs> we could save the grisly details. They are in the book. Okay. But um, they tossed him. Oh, they went out to the main line and tossed him over a socialite's uh, fieldstone wall. Mm-hmm. And this poor young man who was delivering meat to the socialite found this big potato bag. Mm-hmm. So he pulled out his penknife to see what was inside. Ugh. Yeah. Not the potatoes. No, that's <laughs> not potatoes. That's an arm. That's I do see eyes, though. <laughs> let, yes. <laughs> oh. <laughs> you huh? look awful. Huh? Huh? Again, thank you. Please tip your waiters. Kathy, seriously, never coming back again. <laughs> this is what happens when the podcast gets to an hour. We just start getting. Have we been doing this for an hour? Fifty-five. Wow. Minutes. Oh. I know. I know. I told you. You I, do Kat- edit these, right? Yes, <laughs> we do. We good, leave the good, jokes good, in. Good. We do. We, we do the leave jokes. the jokes in, as long as they're not going to get us fired. Kathy, I'm excited for your book. Thank Are you excited for your book? I am. I, is your family excited for your book? They are. They yeah. are. Very much available in time for Christmas everywhere. Yeah, yeah, that's the deal. I should, we should also mention me, Kathy's mentioned it a couple times that her husband is uh, one of the one of the good guys. I always enjoyed. John is quite accomplished. As John well. Sweeney, editor, former editor in chief of the News Journal, right? Is that opinion editor? No, opinion. I'm no. sorry, editor. He's the editorial editor. Yes, yes. yes. opinion so editor. Yeah. I always enjoyed my time taking whoever I was working with at the time. And sitting down for a good conversation with John, always seemed to learn something. He got a new perspective. Likewise. Yeah, he was awesome. He was very awesome. John was so good people. We're excited. Well, I should I say John you was just good people. Was. I say it was. I mean, was like John. It was. It was good to work with John. Yes. Like when I worked with John, he was good people. He's not dead. 
Uh, sorry, I didn't mean to mean to say it that way. Huh? He, John act- was such a good man. No, he's John's very much alive. Very much. He's actually researching John Dickens. Oh, oh yes, I think I do follow him on social media, so I do uh, see what he's up to, and uh, so he's is he hanging out in Dover uh, around the plantation? What was he? Uh, he has so many books on the founding fathers so he's doing some research and a lot of like right now he's probably just reading i would love to see more delaware founding father book material you know give me give me a a a mckean book give me a, a caesar rodney book we don't even really know what caesar rodney looked like let alone do we have a solid imp- you know impression of what his life was like what is there? Is there a healthy competition on the writing in in your house? Oh no, no. We always help each other. It's, Do you? Yeah, it's fun. Um, you guys uh, have like we, like we, a we, serious processing power for historical research in that house for sure. Well, we we basically our agreement is he stays in his own century and I stay in mine. <laughs> <laughs> and you know, now now I'm moving mine up. Yeah. Okay. You know. So he um, will take the. Uh, he's got the. He can go backward. He can do 17, and, that, and then he go into the 1600s. Yeah. You just keep, just keep going back. You're you going to go forward. Free. Right. Yeah. <laughs> what are the, what's the market on the 1600s historical books? I well, don't think I mean, it's vast. I mean, it could be new. You know, since the 1619 project, we're going to start looking at American history before the uh, you know the birthplace of the founding fathers. So who knows? Could be a whole market for it. Yeah. I'm going to keep an eye on that. Well, see, one of the interesting things about this is ten of these guys, ten of these villains. This is the, 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 the true crime, the yeah. Philadelphia crime. Yeah, yeah, sure. Ten of these villains looked at the world for the last time from either the top of a gallows or being strapped into an electric chair. In fact, one of the arsenic murder uh, perpetrators kept trying to stand up in the electric chair. That didn't work out for him. Yeah. Kept I thought we were saving. <laughs> I thought we weren't talking about the grisly <laughs> details. Didn't we? Oh, sorry. sorry. Weren't, weren't you like <laughs> strapped down in those chairs back then? They tried, but he kept standing up. Um, they did. Uh, eventually, he was executed. But what I was going to say is that, that all these people, they were all executed. Uh, ten of them were executed. Four of them, one after another, within minutes. Um, but they're all like part of that forgotten Philadelphia, except for H. H. Holmes, who was in *The Devil in the White City*. All of the other ones, one of the more consequential murders was Octavius Cato, who was a civil rights leader who made it possible for African Americans to ride on trolley cars in Philadelphia, which uh-huh. was very necessary. If you wanted a job, you had to sure. get on a trolley Public car. Public transportation is uh, pretty he important. Was, he was also a uh, the captain of Pythians, one of the pre-Negro uh, League leagues for African-American players. He was, it was another case of Philadelphians jumping in uh, without anyone asking them. He was shot on South Street, and you can go and see the marker uh, near where his house was. A a 21-year-old man shot him and just stood there walking, and the police were not arresting him. And a 61-year-old rider, trolley rider, jumped off and started chasing the 21-year-old to catch him. Uh, You know, things like that. People, the... What what kind of hit was that? Was that a government hit, or was that... It, it, it was, I don't know whether you'd call it racial, racial or ethnic. It was, there were several ethnic groups in Philadelphia at the time all fighting for the same jobs. Mm-hmm. And uh, so uh, Octavius Cato was a, a victim. Uh, he had a huge funeral, one of the largest funerals at that time, very large funerals, as with the Lincoln funeral, were very fashionable at that time. And he had a very large one. One of the things that I think is interesting is wherever you go in Philadelphia, you're probably near the site of some crime. Sure. Even on Pine Street, a very rich socialite was thrown out a window one night. You walk by and you think, wow, would I have been one of the 2,000 people who lined Fairmont Avenue to see Al Capone uh, being released from prison or... If I had been in Germantown, would I have the presence of mind to, to spot those two men who kidnapped Charlie? 
I, I just think the, the arsenic murder ring is really interesting. I don't know anything. What is what is that? Give us the Reader's Digest. I'm going to go out on a limb and say they murder people with arsenic. Yes, yes. Well, not, not only. They tried to get uh, typhoid germs. Uh, they weren't successful, though, so they stuck with arsenic. Uh, they operated... What, what, what era is this? Uh, this was the Depression in South Philadelphia. And so, they, like, at that point in time, they were cognizant of, like, biological warfare tactics? So is yes. this, like, the first serial insane. murderer? Uh, this was... Uh, no, it was not the first serial murderer. That would have been Anton Probst. And he was long before, in, in the 19th century, he killed eight people on a farm, actually almost in the shadow of Citizens Bank Park. It was on a cattle farm, and he was trying to rob his, uh, the owner of the farm. So he killed eight, uh, the entire fa almost the entire family in a farmhand in order to go in and loot the house. He, he actually was caught, and he was hanged. And at the time, medical people believed that if you died a violent death, the last thing you saw was imprinted on your retina. So as soon as Anton was cut down, they took him to the prison paint shop and examined his retina to see if that was there. And the it paint was, shop. It was not. Yeah, the paint shop. That was mm. handy. <laughs> and it was not. <laughs> but is, is that just because they had the longest bench? Interesting. Don't know. No. That is um, so weird. They obviously. The paint shop. Not like the infirmary. Yeah. Well, maybe it's because it was easier to clean up, right? If you're going to, like, cut his eyes out. Eyeballs out. Uh, you know, maybe the paint shop had a drain in the floor. I don't know. Well, we know they didn't have electric lights because right. it was 1860, right. whatever. Yeah. But anyway, the arsenic murder ring, it was run by a tailor from Passyunk Avenue, the area that now is East Passyunk, the very fashionable restaurant mm -hmm. area. That was, uh, they, the police called it Arsenic Alley back then because there were so many members of this arsenic murder ring. It was the largest mass murder in the country up until that point. What it, what motivates someone to get in a group of murderers? Insurance money. Money. Thanks, Ben Franklin. <laughs> Thanks for inventing insurance. <laughs> Way to go. But also, also the in Philadelphia. Office. But also, the, but also bifocals. <laughs> also fire stations. Libraries. libraries. And libraries. So, like you take the good with the get. Look. If we're going to have bifocals, we're going to have murder rings. You just got to... Put his joints. Well, the, Herman Petrillo was this character. He sold insurance, and he was a tailor as well. He sold insurance in the back of his tailor uh, business. And he believed that he was in communication with the devil. In fact, his mistress called him her demon lover, and she said it was not a misnomer. His partners in crime were the unhappy wives of the victims. <laughs> so uh, he very used, unhappy. He are you ready to option this as a movie? Because this <laughs> sounds like at least at minimum a Netflix series. <laughs> well, it was it was such a big case that the police used uh, a scoreboard similar to like a high school football game. And the Inquirer ran a picture of a woman standing in front of it, and she was dwarfed by it. There were just so many cases in so many states. Wow. So if you didn't like your husband, you'd go to the tailor. Yeah, pretty much, yes. And you'd get a check. And you'd probably have to kick some back to the tailor, too, I'd assume. Yeah, uh, most of it, actually, yeah. Most of it. Yeah. But the, the case just, they exhumed bodies. There was always some unimaginable. How many bodies? Oh. How many victims, I should say? Uh, um. It was either 70 or 150, quite wow. a few. This was Depression era. Yes. But arsenic at that point, like, had been a pretty long-used poison, right? Like, people thought for a long time Zachary Taylor, the president, was poisoned by arsenic. Yeah. Like, th this, yeah. Was a, this was a not uncommon way to poison someone. Yeah, it was called the inheritance powder, actually. Yeah. <laughs> so. Sadly. So how do, they, how do they get away with it for so long? 
Well, actually, they were caught not because they were killing people, but because one of them was also a counterfeiter, and he passed a bad bill for a bag of potato chips. And, uh, you know, it started snowballing, and next thing you know, they're in court. And every day in court, something new would happen. Like one day, one of the suspects couldn't show up because she had chewed glass the night before. You know, as one accidentally does occasionally. It happens. Oh, sorry, I can't come in tomorrow. I accidentally <laughs> chewed some glass. Glass fell in my All right, well, we'll, we'll, we'll reschedule for next week. Try not to eat any more glass, ma'am. <laughs> like, how? What? Well, one of, one of them, uh, one of the, there was a fortune, of course there were fortune tellers involved, and witch men and all sorts of, um, uh, a lot of self-made widows and black dresses. And uh, one of the fortune tellers stood up in court one day and started scratching herself like a cat. This oh. is this has got to be a Netflix series. Do you know anyone at Netflix? <laughs> no, Listen, but I'm liking it. Netflix. If you're going to greenlight some of the stuff you greenlight, you got to it's, it's weird like the option uh, this. Who was Perry Mason HBO? It sounds like some like the whoever made the Perry Mason oh, HBO. Oh yeah, did you see Mason that? Did you see the the I, I, not, not a not fan. For your, not for no. Not a fan. Didn't not, do it for Not a fan. <laughs> it was a little all over the place for me. A I bit. got 3 episodes in and I'm a completionist, so I had to stick it out. <laughs> yeah, you finished it. I did. I'm more looking forward to the second season now that he is Perry Mason that you know. You didn't like the anti-hero Perry Mason? No. The acting was great, though. I'll give him that. Oh, well, I mean, like, the costuming was really good, too. You know, anytime you're in that, like, that depression era period, the the costuming was always engrossing. Yeah, and I just, you talk about the the inheritance powder, and you talk (laughs) about, like, every woman has a story for wanting to do what she did to her husband, I guess. Whether it's for the, mo- like with the arsenic, whether why she went to the tailor, you know, for the money or for the, whatever societal ills were occurring in that house in that time. Kathy, that book sounds pretty riveting, not bedtime reading for the kids, nope, but. Nope, uh, don't do it. But good, but good stuff. And you never know. While we're sitting here talking to Kathy today, that book comes out. In a month, or in a few months, in November, and you know what? She could be a Netflix producer in a year, a year from today. So, yeah, your timeline between Lincoln and this book is about what four years? Yes. So, in you know, twenty twenty five, is there gonna? Do you, are you already working on the next thing? The women of the assassin. You're going uh, back, back to the yeah, okay, back to Lincoln. Staying in her century. Got it. <laughs> going back to her century. Right? But my favorite thing about the yeah. arsenic murder yeah. people where they arrested the wife of a filling station owner, and uh, they, they arrested her for killing her previous husband. So the detectives went to her current husband, and he said, oh, should I call a doctor or a lawyer first? <laughs> <laughs> yes. Okay, yes. Doctor, yeah. lawyer, guy. The answer That's is yes. Doctor, lawyer. Both, yeah. yeah. Awesome. Well, Kathy, uh, I, I don't want to hold you in here anymore unless, unless there's any more amazing stories that you've been hiding out on, or, or holding Talk, back on us. Got tons of amazing I know, you stories. Do have, but you've got so <laughs> many stacks of paper. Save them for the book. It's true. It's true. We don't want to ruin the book for anybody. Save yeah. it for the book. Yeah. Well, thank you for coming in. This has been Kathy Canavan. You're going to get uh, her... Newcastle County resident. Newcastle County's own famed Lincoln author. Lincoln book's fantastic. And, and the new book, again, one more time. True Crime Philadelphia. True Crime Philadelphia. You can pre-order it on Amazon. Yep. If you're curious to know more about any of these great different groups of crazy serial killers and or kidnappers and or whatever else you can think of. Gangsters. Bank robbers. Ga- bank robbers. Gangsters. Yep. Uh, it, this, it sounds like it's going to be a great book. And hopefully one day a streaming service and series and or movie. Yeah. Because I think it would be great. Get, Get your agent on that. Again, Thanks, Hulu, Thanks, Netflix, Kyle. HBO. If you're listening, call this woman up. Hit him up. Hit her up. Thanks, Gabby. Thanks, Kyle. Thanks, Brian. You got it.